0: You have a Bible, you can open it with me uh, to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 21 as we finish up at least uh, the 2023 portion of this series that we've called Good King, Bad King. We're looking at Saul and David and the uh, shenanigans therein. Uh, uh, how's everybody feeling? Good. Me too. <laughs> I, I, that's not true. Uh, uh, I'll get to that in a second if I didn't introduce myself. My name is Mark so great to be here with you. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. If you're visiting from out of town, these baskets, we're passing them, but they're for our family. Just pass them on. Uh, if you ever do uh, you know, end up being here and this is your family and you want to give, this is how we do it. And these baskets, you can give online as well at baylife.org slash give. We also keep all of our information on our website, baylife.org. You can pull down the uh, menu for weekly and all of the information that's coming up is uh, right there. Obviously, we are... Full bore into our holiday season, you know, one turkey down, and uh, we're heading towards the next one or whatever you guys eat on Christmas. As we enter into December, we're going to shift gears uh, towards the Christmas story, the arrival of our Savior here on earth, and uh, as such, we're going to start a new series called Christmas Stories. This is going to be a special time together in God's Word. Come back and hang out with us. Uh, here's my disclaimer. Uh, Uh, Earlier last week, I uh, found out that I'd be preaching this weekend. I had set up to go and visit my family in in Illinois and hang out there. I had a late flight last night because of that. Uh, I was going to come and just be at church with the rest of you guys. Uh, But things shifted, and uh, I was uh, uh, called from the bullpen, as it were, uh, to be uh, here preaching with you. And in the time that it took me to say, yeah, I'll preach this weekend, uh, I got whatever this is. So uh, I don't know if it was from the plane rides. Or from my uh, 16-month-old grandnephew, uh, who spit all over me for the last couple days. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, I'm having a lot of fun. I've been laying down in between uh, sermons, and and, uh, I'm looking forward to getting back in bed right after this. But uh, 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 all that to say, I'm not going to hang out after the service. Hope you understand. Shane, one of our pastors and uh, our prayer team would love to pray with you. Please avail yourself of that opportunity. Like I said, we're in first... Samuel chapter 21 um, and we're gonna uh, watch as David the good king gets supplies anybody ever left on a trip and forgot something yeah it's like the human you know condition that's we're just forgetful and so we'll bust out for places and and neglect to pack something Eleanor and I have just kind of come to peace with it like we actually plan to get things when we get to somewhere that we're going like like we bought toothpaste that was the first move we did when we got to Illinois this past week is we went and bought toothpaste. I don't know, we just do that now. Yeah, that's us. Anyway, uh, one of my favorite uh, stories of people neglecting to pack involves my uh, middle son, Cooper. He was about four years old, it was the first time we let him pack his own bag on a trip. We were going camping with a bunch of families from the church that we were a part of at the time. And so he packed his bag, it was nice and full. I threw it in the car and, uh, and neglected to check the insides That's going to come up here in a second. But uh, we got to this camping trip. We went down to the river, and uh, Cooper and the rest of the kids just got all dirty, muddy, had a great time. It was one of those, like, you know, take pictures. This is awesome. These kids are a mess. Uh, But then we took him back to the tent to be able to get him cleaned up, and that's when we realized, as we opened his bag, that all he had packed was action figures, just (laughs) 40 action figures. Every action figure in our house was in this bag. wasn't a stitch of clothing in the whole thing. So he wore his little sister's pink skort for the rest of the weekend. We still have pictures. It's great. Anyway, uh, David's in a panic. He's running for his life as we enter into the text today. Uh, We've been talking about it. David was anointed king of Israel. There had already been a king, or there already was a king in Israel. His name was Saul. He had been rejected by God. Uh, David was going to be his replacement. Uh, Saul was not down with this. And uh, he has uh, in weeks past become very obvious in his intent uh, to end David so that David cannot fulfill God's plan for him in becoming king of Israel. It's really come to a head here in the last couple chapters uh, as Saul has made it you know, entirely clear of his uh, you know, plan to end David at the first chance he gets. And so David's run. He's run uh, from his house uh, to the prophet Samuel in a place called Ramah uh, in, in a, an enclave called Naoth. Uh, uh, Saul sends messengers to get David read assassins, uh, three different sets or three different groups they all end up prophesying uh, in the name of God and Saul goes himself if you're here for that sermon uh, to get David and and he ends up being overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and so David is having these near misses, he's escaping, Uh, last week uh, he's hanging out with uh, Saul's son Jonathan, his brother-in-law and he's uh, concocting a plan to just Finally, once and for all, ascertain Saul's intents. Um, Saul uh, doesn't disappoint, or does disappoint, I guess, uh, uh, but you know, reveals to Jonathan that he wants David dead. And Jonathan says goodbye to his, his brother-in-law, his friend. And now David, for the rest of the, well, not the rest, but well, pretty much the rest of the story, is just going to be running from this maniacal king who wants to kill him. Understand if he uh, forgets to pack a bag, everybody okay with that? And so we find him uh, uh, in this chapter uh, looking to, you know, meet his needs and get his supplies, and uh, we're going to read it together this morning. I need to say this one more disclaimer: some passages in the Bible are easier to preach than others. Can you imagine, right? Like there's certain literary forms in our in our Bibles that just kind of preach themselves. I especially like like Paul's epistles or Peter's epistles. They're just very direct. Do this. Don't do that. And we can kind of just all relate to those things when we read them. Sometimes, though, we read, like we're reading today, this historical narrative they're called. They're just like the, it's like the details of what happened in, in some God follower's life, and, and it can become um, challenging at times to make sure that you pull the truth out of that. God's Word is always true, and it always has truth for us, but to pull the right truth out of that and not misapply the Word. I that, that's my caution. Uh, as, as you read your Bibles, try not to put stuff in there that isn't. Try to keep yourself from over-reading the text or, or over-spiritualizing certain portions that aren't prescriptive, they're just descriptive. They're just telling you, you know, certain parts of a story. Because um, we're, we're fallible in that way. Has anybody else uh, here ever read something and, and misinterpreted it the first time you read it? I got an email this morning from one of our staff mates. Uh, her name's Lacey Krantz, she's amazing. Our whole staff's amazing, I just love our team. But Lacey was letting everybody on our staff in this all staff email know <laughs> that there was uh something going on in our midst the the, the 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 title of the email the the subject line read building a freezer we're, we're for our purposes we're in building A that's building B across the way okay and so she was uh basically and everybody know that the freezer that's in our kitchen back here it went kaput uh, over the thanksgiving break and everything that it is in it was in it has a uh, thawed and, and, and been ruined and so if you had stuff in there it's gone, sorry. Uh, but just letting you know. Okay. So I'm all doped up on whatever cough stuff I got going right now. And I read the subject line and I was like building a freezer. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't keep reading. And my <laughs> Yeah, this is adorable, isn't it? My immediate th- my immediate thought was why why was Lacey building a freezer? <laughs> there's so many companies that do that for us. I mean there's a there's a couple in our building right now. I mean, you can just go to, you know, whatever your famous tate or whatever and and get you a freezer if you need one. No, don't build one. And then I was like, wow, good for her. She's building a freezer. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's some pretty amazing stuff, you know, a modern you know, technology marvel there. where to go, Lacey? And then I read the email. All right, but you get my point. Sometimes you can read things and, and misconstrue, misinterpret what's happening there. Don't over-spiritualize stuff that's, It's not meant to be over-spiritualized. Make sure you grab the truth that is there. Let's do our best with this text as we move forward. I brought that up because this is a tough text, Um, and you'll see as we read. Here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 21 in 1 Samuel says this, Then David came to Nob, nice name, uh, to a a guy named Ahimelech the priest. If you blew up uh, the map of Israel, uh, right down here in the southern region is Jerusalem, okay? Modern Jerusalem. Uh, up to the north, I guess, east, is uh, Ramah, okay? And then as you come down south towards Jerusalem, just outside of modern Jerusalem is this place called Nab. Now, when, when David's, uh, uh, you know, uh, running from Saul, there isn't a Jerusalem yet. It's not Jerusalem like we know of Jerusalem today. Uh, it's not the center of, is a, of, of Jewish worship. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just not there, okay? Uh, but this is where David comes to and he meets this, this guy, Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech is the grandson of a dude named Phineas. We've met him if you've been a part of this series. He is the son of Eli. Phineas was worthless. A complete dirtbag as a high, as a priest, okay? And his dad wasn't that much great. He was kind of just wimpy and never got his sons, Phineas and Hophni, in line. And so uh, Ahimelech is the grandson of Phineas, the great-grandson of Eli, and he's uh, now serving in the priesthood uh, in this place called Nob, which apparently has kind of like a, I guess a modern equivalent would be like a monastery. There's a bunch of Levites living with Ahimelech in Nob, and they're kind of in this enclave, this Jewish spiritual enclave uh, that is uh, a place of worship in the land. Good so far? How are we doing? <laughs> the rest of the verse says this, Ahimelech came to meet David. And he was trembling, and he says to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? Which is kind of the same thing, right? Why are you alone and no one's with you? It's like, yeah, that's, alo- that's what alone means. Anyway, uh, but it just kind of shows how nervous this guy was. He's like double talking. Um, why was he nervous? Well, he's meeting the most uh, dangerous warrior in all of Israel. This guy killed a giant a couple chapters ago, okay? Um, we don't have a, a time stamp here, But David's on the run he's probably moving at night he shows up alone which is not the norm in in uh, apparently in Israeli military maneuvers he would be there with a bunch of other soldiers but he's by himself all of these things are throwing Ahimelech for a loop perhaps he's even heard of the the recent you know he went online and googled Saul and David and uh, He's learned of, of the contention and Saul's intent to kill David and he's even read you know, or heard about Naoth this Rama incident where uh, you know Samuel was giving uh, you know shelter to David and and Saul sent all these you know men to to go and, and take David from from that place and he doesn't want Saul's men to come and, and mess with Nob and so all of these things he's a little bit intimidated uh, uh, so. Uh, why are you here? It's is, is essentially what Ahimelech says, and, and David gives him a story. A good king is the first thing we're going to talk about. A good king misdirects. There's been a lot of misdirection in the story of David later, lately. Lots of uh, um, ruses, and uh, we'll just call them lies. Lots of uh, deceptions, as it were. And here comes David with another one. Read it with me. David says to Ahimelech the priest, "The king." Note that we're gonna come back to that in a second. The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, <coughs> Let no one let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. That's all uh, David's, you know, codes for saying secret mission. I can't I can't talk about this. If I tell you, I'll have to kill you, something like that. Anyway, uh But the reason that you haven't, you know, received news that I'd be coming to you like this is that this is a secret mission. The reason I'm alone is that the guys, I don't even want you to know where they are, which there aren't guys there, but uh, um, he's basically saying, hey, man, hush, hush, Uh, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place, intentionally vague, won't tell him where he's going. Now then, here's his request. What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. David hasn't packed a lunch and he's got a long road ahead of him. He's going to keep running. He's going to need some food. And so he says to Ahimelech, hey, man, you got any groceries? What's in the pantry? Just a little pause here. Is anybody else's favorite part of Thanksgiving, the leftovers? I just love me some Thanksgiving leftovers, man. Eleanor and I had Thanksgiving last Sunday with our kids, and I intentionally told her, I said, babe, cook more. Just cook more. Because the best part of Thanksgiving is the next day, heating that stuff up in the microwave. I don't know why it tastes better out of the microwave. It just does to me. Back to the sermon. All right, uh, <coughs> so here at, uh, uh, at, in Nob, at Ahimelech's place of, of whatever, this place of worship, um, there's no groceries. David's like, man, give me something. Five loaves, we don't know why it was five. Maybe he was just throwing out a number there. You got a loaf of bread, whatever. Um, it turns out he doesn't have anything. Can we just briefly cover this whole uh, deception thing, uh, this, uh, this way that David kind of misdirects? Um, there's two possible interpretations of this. One is that David, like Michael, his wife before him, and Jonathan, who was complicit with another ruse a chapter before, um, is just telling a lie for his own skin's sake. He's just trying to make... He doesn't know if a going to inform on Saul, he doesn't know what he knows. And so he's basically creating this story so that he can get what he needs and get the heck out of Dodge, okay? Um, so that's one way to look at this. Um, a, a story just rife with uh, deceit. Um, uh, we've talked about this. As, as Is it okay every once in a while for there to be a, a slight misdirection in life if the greater good is served? And what the Bible basically uh, points to is the answer being yes. Look at me just so you don't think your pastor told you you can lie. I'm telling you that 99.9% of deceit is just flat out wrong, uh, and it's going to lead to ruin. It's sin. But on the rare occasion that God's story moving forward depends on um, some misdirection being given, it seems in Scripture that that's okay. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. I encourage you to look at that sermon if you want more on that subject. Super rare, though. Everybody heard me say that? Super rare. So that's one option. The other option is something that interesting that I read this week. Um, one of the scholars that I read thinks that maybe David is referring in his uh, explanation here to a different king. That's why he doesn't say Saul. There's only one king in Israel. What's his name? Saul. Well, why, so why doesn't he just say, hey, Saul has told me to come here and do this and all this stuff on the down low? No, this is what he says. Look at verse 2 again. It says, David says to Ahimelech, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. Who's that king that he might be referring to? Well, we know that there's a king of kings. In Israel, he's known as Yahweh. He's God. And so maybe David, in his own way, is saying, hey, I'm on a mission from God, Blues brothers. And, uh, and, and I, I want, I'm doing what I'm doing as at the behest of the king the great king, not Saul. And so he's not lying, right? Uh, perhaps you've been in that kind of situation, you know, like where you're trying to say something without saying something. Uh, that's what David is perhaps doing here. He's um, on a mission as God leads him into safety, and so uh, he's asking for what he's asking for. Um, what do we do in these kinds of situations where the Bible could be a couple different things? We weigh them, and we accept either one is plausible, but we look for the greater meaning. And the greater meaning is this. You're welcome. <laughs> Every once in a while, there's going to be, uh, as we're going to see in the next section of this, times where the, the, the black and white rules may bend a little bit for the sake of the story moving forward, for the sake of God's will being realized. Um, and let's get to that next part, and you'll see what I mean. So... Uh, Having heard this, uh, uh, the high priest makes an exception. The priest answers David. I have no common bread on hand. No wonder bread, whatever your brand is. Um, But there is, what's it say? Holy bread. Uh, If the young men have kept themselves from women. Okay, what? (laughs) If you're not aware of some some Jewish uh, laws... None of this is going to make a lot of sense to you. Let's start with the fact that there's no common bread. Pantry's empty, okay? There's only holy bread. Well, what's holy bread? Well, if you go to Leviticus 24, you can see where Israel is commanded by God, uh, specifically the Levites, the priests of Israel, are commanded by God on every Sabbath to bake for themselves 12 loaves of bread. They'd probably look like pita, um, probably be unleavened. And so uh, they'd take these loaves, and they'd put them on the on the uh, altar of God. They would be representative of Israel, 12 tribes. And they would uh, hearken back to the days where God provided for Israel manna from the sky during the wilderness excursion. Everybody with me? So these are just some of the ways that God, in his worship, in the Jewish uh, religion at the time, would draw people to remembrance and to worshiping him and glorifying him. So this bread was commanded to be put on the Altar on on the Sabbath, it would sit there until the next Sabbath, which is a week, Saturday to Saturday, and then fresh bread would be put in its place, and that bread, that week-old bread, yay, would be eaten by the Levites. Okay, if you grew up Catholic, there was certain things that the priests were entitled to in the Catholic communion that others were not entitled to. I don't know, I hope I got that right. Anyway, I'm not Catholic. But it's the same thing in the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion. The Levites were entitled to that bread problem. David needs bread, that's all we got. So what does, what's the solution that Ahimelech comes to here? He says, well, if you assure me that your men are like the Levites, in what way? That they have kept themselves from women. Here we go. <laughs> the Jewish uh, faith required for you to be ceremonially clean, that you had to abstain from being intimate with your spouse, fellas, uh, before certain rites and passages could be experienced, okay? And so the Levites would certainly do that. They'd be married, but they would certainly withstand or with withhold until they had participated in this rite, and then they would go back to doing that. I don't have time to go into all the texts where it says that, but that's what the Jewish faith required, right? And so here's essentially what Ahimelech is saying. Hey, man, if your men will act like the Levites, I'll bend the rules and give you this bread. So David hears that, and here's what he says. He answered the saying, priest, saying, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, uh, when I go on an expedition. One more thing. If you were going to war, you weren't with your, your wife. Uh, they wanted you to be really nasty out there, apparently. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, but that was another law that was required of Israeli men. And so, David being a soldier, having led many military excursions, like, yeah, man. We're on this mission, and, uh, which he's not. He's just running. He's already, anyway. But, uh, of course, uh, we're, we're within the, the boundaries of this commandment. We, we have withheld because of an expedition that we're on. The vessels of these young men, he goes on to say, are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. He's like, we're so kosher, even on days where we're not fighting, we're sticking to this standard. So that y- you can be assured, Ahimelech, if you give me this bread, the boy's are well within the guidelines of, of the participation in its eating. Uh, how much more today will their vessels be holy, he says. If it's a Sabbath, right? Again, an, another layer of, of uh, you know, ceremonially being clean. Uh, yeah, man, we're good, is essentially what David's saying. So it says in verse 6, everybody follow me? Have I lost anybody? Okay. It says that the priest gave him, David, the holy bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, another name for this holy bread, the presence of God, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. And that's what I just told you, Sabbath the Sabbath. So he gives them the old bread. So we're like, cool, great, David's got sandwiches. Now what? Well, uh, something significant just happened there that we need to kind of dive a little bit deeper into. Uh, Once again, a standard of Scripture of the Jewish faith has been kind of uh, undermined uh, for the sake of the greater good moving forward. It's this idea or this picture of the uh, the form or the formal being set aside for the practical. Um, uh, uh, we put compassion, <coughs> excuse me, we put compassion ahead of ritual. At least that's what happens in this case. Um, anybody in here a black and white person? Like it's just. The rules are the rules, and this is just what you do. This is going to be a hard passage for those of you like that. Like this, this is one of those yeah buts situations. The exception is being noted here. And uh, it kind of reminds me of, of what we do in life. We have our standards, our truth. Everybody believe that God has the one way, the one truth, the one life that we're meant to live, right? Okay, so we have our truth, and we're meant to hold to it. But he's also called us to compassion, to love. And we we live in this messy world. Anybody notice that? Where it's not easy to draw this straight line to everything that we're supposed to be and do. And so sometimes a guy named uh, Colton uh, Kalenbacher, I think that was his name, he came here and he used a, a rubber band to describe the tension that exists between truth and love. We hold on to truth, but sometimes love and compassion Seemingly takes us away from the black and white legalistic version of truth for the sake of God's greater good moving forward. Like, like if you've ever loved someone or been in a family with someone who does not follow Jesus, you perhaps know what I'm talking about. You have to figure out this tension of, I'm going to hold to my truth in Jesus while I still seek to love them even though they're not following Him. It's it's just how we live. I'm going to live in this culture with my truth, but I'm not going to become so rigid in my truth or so um, you know, black and white in my truth that I, I fail to love the people who don't follow it yet. It's this constant tension that we wrestle with in life. If you're a legalist, things seem to be wrong all the time. It's all that matters. If you're licentious, you're someone who's like, it's easier to get forgiven than to get permission. Somewhere in the middle of those two positions is this place that Jesus has saved us to. It's called liberty. We're meant to walk with him in this liberty that doesn't fall into, uh, you know, uh, unduly uh, emphasizing rules over a relationship with him. And certainly we shouldn't fall into the other ditch, which is just basically saying, free for all, I'll just do whatever I want and I'll confess it and God will forgive it. Yay, and I'm done. Tough conversation. Excuse me, but one we're meant to have. Yeah. So Ahimelech basically bends the rules for the sake of David. Functioning on what he knows, he says, okay, as long as you tell me that they're kosher, I'll, I'll let this, this one time be the case. Now, would it surprise you that Jesus himself actually picks up this very story in one of his teachings in his time here on earth? In Luke chapter 6, verse 1, we read this, on a Sabbath while he was going through the grain fields, Jesus' disciples were uh, plucking uh, out some of the grains and rubbing in their hands so they could actually eat the kernel within the grain. Um, in the culture that Jesus was born into, huge no-no. Certainly uh, mandated by Scripture not to work on the Sabbath. Who's heard that one before? I grew up in that house. I couldn't have any fun on Sunday, which wasn't even the Sabbath. But you get anyway. All right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no work, no no effort of any kind. And so when The Pharisees, it tells us in verse 2, saw these guys uh, rubbing these kernels of grain in their hands. They they asked this question. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? How can you break the rules? And this is what Jesus does. He hears the conversation between the disciples and these Pharisees, and he teaches. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. Uh, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. That was the rule. And also gave it to those who were with him. Uh, we know that men gathered with David after the fact. Maybe he shared the, the bread with some others that we don't read about in 1 Samuel. But, but nonetheless, an exception was made for David. He says this in verse 5. He says, guys, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is the lord of the sabbath i'm the say so over what really happens here and there will be times where we go outside of the accepted and known rules for the sake of the greater good moving forward this is a tough text i'm looking at some of you guys and you're like is he telling me i can do whatever i want no i'm not no i'm not but i am telling you that god is god he is the lord of the sabbath and of everything and of all the rules and at times, there will be allowances in those rules as his story moves forward. Brief cutaway scene here. <laughs> it's foreshadowing for what's going to come in the next chapter, which we'll get to next year sometime. Verse 7 says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doug. <laughs> he was from a place called Edom, which was a, uh, an enemy of Israel at the time. Um, and He was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Um, we're going to find out more about Doug in the next chapter, but he's here witnessing this exchange is all you need to know. And he's going to end up being the rat. He's going to basically tell Saul and Saul's men that David was here and that Ahimelech uh, uh, aided him. And spoiler alert, Ahimelech and 84 other priests here in this enclave in Nob are going to lose their lives at the hand of Saul and specifically Doug because of their complicity in the aiding and abetting of David. Yeah, things are going to get ratcheted up in the nation of Israel here in the next few verses. But let's finish our text and I'll let you go home so I can go back to bed. A good king gears up. David's got his bread. (coughs) It's one of the things he forgot. But now he needs something else. He needs a means by which he can protect himself. And so he says, To Ahimelech, here in verse uh, 8, he says, Hey, man, uh, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? Got any weapons? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. I had to move. Couldn't even go back to my locker and get all my stuff. Ahimelech, hearing this, says to David, The sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. An ephod was this basic chest protector kind of vest thing that a, uh, a priest would wear. And tucked in behind where they stored the ephod uh, was the sword of Goliath, this massive uh, sword that uh, David took off of Goliath. And if you know the story of that victory uh, over the giant, he used it to end him. They hit him with the stone, but the sword was the the, the felling blow, Uh, but it had been taken somehow uh, to Nob. I I think I know how. If you you go back in 1 Samuel in in chapter 17, it says that David uh, took the head of the Philistine. Gross. Uh, But it was a trophy, right, for Israel. Uh, He took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem. This is anachronistic. This is something that is put in the story that doesn't exist at the time. Jerusalem isn't around yet. Um, uh, but it's, it's near Nob. We know that Nob is right here, Jerusalem's right here. So he probably takes the head of the Philistine to, to Nob. Uh, he takes uh, and puts his armor in his tent. Uh, 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 the armor of, of, of Goliath was kept as a keepsake for David, but apparently the sword was also delivered, and it was left there at Nob. And so that's why Himlech says, yeah, you know, you know full well what's here. The sword of Goliath is here. The guy that you killed in the Valley of Elah, it's here. And uh, it's, it's yours if you want it. If you will take it, uh, take it, for there is none but that. Here, that's all we got. David says uh, to Amalek in response, yeah, there is none like that. Give it to me. And then the story moves forward. You know where he goes next? Yeah, this is how bad it is for David. He's going to go to the land of his enemy, the Philistines. He's going to hang out in Gath where Goliath was from. Uh, he's going to have to act like a crazy man so that they won't kill him it gets really hard for David from here on out he's sleeping in caves he is uh, most wanted in Israel it's just going to be tough but here in this story we see how God provides for his uh, physical needs, his food and his defense needs this sword pretty great, we'll pick it up next year as we continue can I leave this with you though? some of you are like okay Mark great story Very descriptive. Thanks for sharing all that stuff. Uh, Is there anything that I should be taking from this? Well, I'll share with you one thing that I read this week that I think was what I took away from this text. Scholars kind of disagree as to why David was so excited for this particular sword. It says there in the last half of verse 9, there is none like that. None like that sword. Yeah, give it to me. Absolutely, I want that. Uh, Why does he say this? Well, uh, just from a practical sense, there truly is no other sword like this sword. It was swung by a giant. It's massive, probably weighed 15 pounds, uh, pretty long. Uh, It would be this, uh, uh, the the average man's sword was probably two, three, four pounds in weight, and it would be this massive uh, weapon that he could use to defend himself. Um, uh, But that's just the beginning of it, some scholars believe. When David sees that sword, it's a reminder to him. Any ever been, uh, I, I went back to the place where Eleanor and I met. We went to Moody Bible Institute yesterday. Yesterday? Friday, whatever. We were in the uh, the, the the same place where I told her I loved her for the first time. Anybody been to there? some of you spouses? Got to do that. I, I, I went to all these places, and certainly the trimmings have changed. Lots of buildings have popped up that weren't there in the last 35 years, right? But these same spots, this is where uh, you know, I asked you to marry me. This is all these and all of those places have special meaning right and they you know uh, Well us up with these emotions that were tied to that original experience When David sees the sword You gotta know That he's looking at this thing and he's remembering in his head as he's panicked and running from Saul That God has gone with him before And he will go with me again. This sword is is a symbol of God's victory over Goliath. Not his. He's a shepherd boy. Sure, he's got a sling. He's pretty handy with it. But except that God goes in the midst of that battle. That's what David said. I I come to you in in the strength and the power of the God of Israel. Right? Except that God gives him the victory over Goliath. None of this stuff is happening in his life. And so in the same way that my sister, my sister Erin, uh, is just a couple years younger than me, she's had cancer three times in her life. Uh, Twice uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and once more recently breast cancer. And by the grace of God, she survived all three. And she's uh, held to a biblical truth that's found in the book of Philippians. Paul writes a ton in there about joy. And if you wanted to summarize the story or the Uh, The theme of the book of Philippians would be, I choose joy. Paul's in prison, but he chooses joy. Everything stinks, but I choose joy. And my sister Erin glommed onto that. So much so that she had it tattooed on her left wrist. So we're like, tattoos, who? Whatever. But it's every time she lifts her hand to reach out to her grandson, every time she goes to grab her coffee, she sees something on her body that reminds her of the goodness of God in her cancer. And it's the thing that propels her into whatever's next that day. It's the thing that centers her as she considers her future. She doesn't know how much time she's got. Cancer comes back, people. But she has this mindset rooted in God's truth to have joy, to choose joy no matter what comes. And it's a constant reminder. Don't you think that David's carrying around Goliath's sword is that same kind of reminder? It's the same kind of reminder that when God is for us, who can be against us? That when God goes into the battle with us. He prevails and brings victory. And we can trust him to do so. The prophet Isaiah wrote to the nation of Israel in a difficult time in their history. They had been utterly defeated and taken into captivity. And he writes uh, these words in chapter 54. We made them into a song uh, 20, 30 years ago. We're going to sing it as we close. But God through Isaiah says this, Behold, I have created the smith, uh, the blacksmith, who who blows the fire of the coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. He says, also, I have created the ravager to destroy. Everything that's happening in the world, all the good stuff and even all the hard stuff, the bad stuff, that because of sin has has become a threat to us. He says, all of those things I've created. And what's he trying to say? I'm in control their mind to steer. I own the chessboard, people, both sides. And I'm moving the pieces as I have uh, in my goodwill always moved them. And he says this to, te- you know, my words, "Take heart. No weapon that fashion is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord." and their vindication for me declares the Lord. Servants of the Lord, I know you're out there. Know this, the same way that David knew as he looked at Goliath's sword. God's gone before you in battle before, and he will do it again. He will deliver by his might and in his grace. And we can face whatever we're facing, no matter how panicked we feel, no matter how ill-prepared we are for it like David was, we can face whatever we're facing. In the confidence that God goes before us. Can we stand and sing this song as a reminder of that before we go?